morning. Welcome to uh, 2021 and a, a new semester. Let's, uh, let's pray as, uh, as we uh, begin. Father, we love you and uh, we're grateful for uh, your love for us, that you have uh, proven yourself to be uh, faithful in our lives. And, uh, and so, uh, as with the new year, um, we confess that there is an opportunity for new mercies and that you will give us uh, the grace that we need uh, today, uh, today. And, uh, and so ask that you would uh, encourage us as we uh, embark on this new season in, uh, in the life of our little church uh, as we begin to study uh, the, uh, the works of your spirit uh, through your people over the, uh, the past uh, millennia. And, uh, and so ask for grace in that, ask for grace as we embark on a, a study of a new book, as we uh, open up 1 Corinthians and begin to expound upon that, that you would uh, help us to, uh, to see more clearly your glory and your goodness and, uh, and the glory and goodness and beauty of uh, the church, even a, a church that is as, uh, as broken and divided as we see in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And so pray that you would just bless us uh, this year, that you would make us individually and corporately to look more like your son. We pray these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts, and so we ask it with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. All right, welcome again to Theological Equipping Class. This year we're studying a subject that we have, uh, we've really kind of thought about for, uh, for a while. We've talked about, we've kind of desired to teach on this particular subject of, uh, of church history, and this is kind of our first opportunity to do so. And some of you kind of share in that excitement. Some of you really uh, enjoy studying history and are intrigued by something like church history. Others of you may maybe wish that you would have checked the syllabus now and you didn't. And so you probably would have slept in had you known this is what we're going to be doing. But when many people think of history, they kind of just think of dates and, uh, and, and, and names, all right? So they think of these random dates. So let's kind of warm up by seeing how many of these you're familiar with. What happened in 1492? All right, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. What about 1776? Birth of America, uh, 1865? End of the Civil War, 13th Amendment, abolished slavery. Uh, 1929? Great Depression, 1945? End of World War II. Other things happened. You might be like, I was born that year or whatever it might be, but other things did happen, but these are some of the major things. 1969? Anybody know? So I think someone said, yeah, moon landing, right? Or if you're feeling more conspiratorial, that's when Hollywood faked a a moon landing. Or if you don't think about uh, dates, you might think about these random names, the names of people that you should know, but you don't really know anything about them. I was talking about this very thing with Jared Lawson over dinner uh, last night as it relates to the Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand. Who was that? Anybody know? His assassination kicked off uh, World War I, and that's about the limit of everyone's knowledge of who he was, right? No one knows anything else uh, about him. That's literally all I know about him. So maybe you feel the same way about names like Henry Kissinger or Marco Polo, the explorer, not the game, Mother Teresa, Julius Caesar, Billy the Kid, Confucius, Cleopatra, and on and on we could go. In fact, if you were to kind of imagine this Venn diagram, 
And in one circle, you have uh, people that you've heard of. And then in another circle, you have people that you know nothing about. For a lot of us, there's a whole lot of people in that overlap, that intersection of, uh, of ignorance and, uh, and fame. But history is really about more than just dates and names. It's the story of how God's sovereignty and redemption are being worked out in the world. It's the story of this conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of man. It's the story of heroes and villains. It's the story of who we are. It's this epic drama that uh, really reveals to us our God and also ourselves. And so it's really interesting. Church history is anything but boring. Obviously, we might over the next year bore you in telling you the story. We might not do justice to the beauty and to the glory and the intrigue of church history, but that's our fault. That's not the subject's fault. And when I say our fault, obviously, I mean that's Zach's fault. So my hope for today is really just kind of set the stage for what we're going to do in this uh, entire year and to excite your interest in the subject of church history uh, by telling you why you should care. That's what we're going to do today, why you should care about church history. So there, I'm going to give you 12 reasons because it's a real biblical number, so I couldn't do 11, but uh, I'm going to give you uh, 12 reasons that you should care about and study church history uh, to prepare us kind of to embark on this journey together over the next year. So let's begin with the, uh, the first one. First reason that you should care about and study church history is because church history reminds us to remember. All right, let's, let's begin with a, a Texas history pop quiz. All right, you ready? Texas history pop quiz. When Sam Houston defeated Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto, what was the rallying cry? Remember the Alamo, right? Remember the Alamo, remember Goliath. Or when someone tweets about September 11th, typically what hashtag do they put? Hashtag never what? Never forget, right? There's something really powerful uh, about remembering, and that's not just true when it comes to Texas or American history. That's true when it comes to all of history. That's true in particular when it comes to biblical history and even church history. And this tendency, this desire, this goodness of remembering is something that has been hardwired into humanity. That's why something uh, like amnesia always intrigues us. If there's ever a movie about amnesia, it, it kind of draws us in. Or, or why conditions like Alzheimer's are so tragic for us. We realize that remembering is this joy, it's this, uh, it's this privilege, but it's also a duty. In fact, remembering is, the, is a biblical command. Look at Exodus 13, three, it's in your notes. Then Moses said to the people, notice this is a command, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Or Deuteronomy 5, 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Or chapter seven of Deuteronomy, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Deuteronomy 9, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. We see it in the New Testament as well. Luke 17, 32, one of the shortest verses in all of scripture. Remember, Lot's wife, 
Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So notice how in, in a number of these passages you see this interweaving together between theology and uh, in history and ethics. Theology and ethics are rooted in the idea of remembering. We read a second ago about how obedience to the Passover and obedience to the Sabbath were connected to remembering. The remembering was the power, it was the fuel for our obedience in those areas. Or consider Exodus 20, Exodus 22 through three. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What's happening in Exodus 20? What's the big thing that happens in Exodus 20? It's the 10 commandments. The giving of the 10 commandments is right there and it's connected to the idea of remembering. So the command to forsake idolatry isn't merely just given uh, floating uh, free, detached from context. It's precisely because of the events of redemption in, uh, in God rescuing Israel from slavery that this command to remember is given. So there's this explicit connection between historical events and Christian ethics. Our ethics are dependent upon events in a lot of uh, ways. In other words, it's in remembering that we're fueled and empowered in our responsibilities toward God and each other. By the way, this is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from most other religions. At the end of the day, whether or not uh, someone named Buddha actually existed is somewhat irrelevant to the concept, to the religion of Buddhism. Likewise, historical uh, events are rather irrelevant when it comes to Shinduism or, uh, Hinduism or Shinto, but Christianity is uh, inherently rooted in history. So every Christmas or every Easter, some well-meaning theological liberal will say something like, even if Jesus never existed, even if Jesus never rose from the dead, we can still affirm the beauty and the truth of the gospel. And that's beautiful, and that's poetic, and that's an absolute lie. What does Paul say? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ who we did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, uh, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So by studying uh, Christian history, by studying church history, we thus cultivate this art, this skill, this responsibility of remembering, and that awakens us to the glory of God and our own op uh, obligations in light of God's glory and works. Second thing, second reason we should care is because church history showcases the sovereignty of God. One of my favorite professors in seminary, uh, John Hanna, he uh, was the guy that I did my uh, master's thesis with, and, uh, and he wrote this, the overarching assumption for the Christian historian is a belief in the sovereignty of God in all human affairs and the decreed outworking of his purposes. We see this idea in the Great Commission. When Christ ascended, what was his command? What did he command his people as he's ascending into heaven? He said to go and do what? Going to make disciples. And how does he tell us to make disciples? 
By what? Baptizing and teaching? You guys are asleep, right? (laughs) Baptizing and teaching them. But on what basis does he say that we are to make disciples by baptizing and teaching? Look at the text, Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the basis of this great commission is this, that all authority has been given to King Jesus. And so church history is this outworking of that authority being demonstrated on the earth. So when we read about early church theological conflict, it's not really just about guys like Arius and Eutyches and Apollinarius and so forth. We're gonna talk about them, but it's not ultimately about them, it's ultimately about the sovereignty of God. When we read about the early spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, when we read about the modern missions movement, that's about the authority of God. When we read about the, uh, the Reformation or the Great Awakening or men like Augustine or Luther or Calvin or Edwards, they're ultimately learning about the kingdom of God. It's not ultimately about Augustine, it's ultimately about King Jesus. Even when we read, read about all of the valleys, all of the depressions in church history, we still see glimmers of God's glory and God's goodness and God's sovereignty as it is clashing with the kingdom of this world. Now, because we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and I hope we do believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, we confess that divine revelation is fully contained in Scripture. God only speaks through and by and in His Word. And yet that doesn't mean that God has ceased to work, that God has ceased to act in this world now that the canon is closed. God acts in the world, didn't end with the book of Acts. If so, we're in trouble because America and you and I aren't in the book of Acts. So the gospel continues to spread and as it does so, there is this painting for us. This is, uh, history is this canvas upon which God's providence is portrayed for us. So by studying history, we in some sense study God himself. We study his glory and his sovereignty. So that's the second reason that we should care. A third reason that we should care about church history is because church history evidences the grace of God. When we read the Bible, we encounter all of these flawed people, even the really good ones, even the people who are heroes of the faith, even the people who, through whom the Messiah came. So Noah got drunk and he exposed himself. Abraham had a bit of a problem with lying and fear. Jacob was a cheater. Moses killed a dude. David committed adultery, killed a man, and lied to cover it up. Solomon was a player. Peter was an impetuous coward. Paul persecuted the church. We see the same reality throughout church history, right? Luther was crude. He was coarse. He was perhaps anti-Semitic. Calvin approved of the execution of a heretic. Many American Christians approved of this horrific uh, uh, tradition of chattel race-based slavery, If any of these guys, if Luther or Calvin or Jonathan Edwards were running for office today, there would be these massive efforts to expose these skeletons in their closets. And yet the church shouldn't hide these scars because there's something deeply encouraging knowing that Augustine and Aquinas and C.S. Lewis and even Billy Graham had blemishes. If God can use them back then in spite of their flaws, then he can use us today. In other words, by studying church history, we see this reality that the church 
The bride of Christ, though it will one day be pure and spotless, we see that as we study scripture, for now, she doesn't appear to be this pure and spotless bride. For now, she looks more like a harlot. We'll see that a lot as we look at 1 Corinthians and how broken it is with the sexually, uh, sexual immorality and with people getting drunk at communion and with people suing one another and fighting over who their favorite apostle is and fighting over the gifts of the spirit and so forth. And so uh, even though one day the church will be this pure and blameless and without blemish uh, bride, for now she, she appears more like a scarlet and that's okay because we're not the hero of the story. Christ is the hero of the story. So by studying church history, we're reminded of this reality. As we see the spots in the spotless bride, we're encouraged to worship the perfect groom. And that leads us to the next point, which is that church history humbles and inspires us. Here's what's really interesting about having heroes. If you have any sort of hero, whether it's a, uh, a hero from your family or a, a, a police officer or it's a, just a, a theological hero, that you're actually humbled as you consider both their strengths and their weaknesses. Both strengths and weaknesses actually humble us. Their weaknesses we just talked about. It's humbling to recognize how utterly dependent we are on grace, that even the best of us are desperately broken and needy. That should really humble us. Instead, in our culture, it doesn't really humble us. Instead, our culture has a tendency to judge previous generations and to topple the statues of any who don't kind of fit under our postmodern presuppositions. It should be terribly humbling, though, to recognize that one day a future generation might treat us the same way that we treat uh, previous generations. But we're also uh, humbled as we consider the strengths of our heroes. For example, as we look at uh, Luther's bold stand against the entire edifice of Roman Catholicism, Luther's entire world is Roman Catholic, and yet he is willing to take a stand against it. He refuses to recant. Or as we look at the example of martyrs willingly dying for the gospel, we'll talk about men like Ignatius in 110 AD who was preaching the gospel, literally preaching the gospel to the soldiers who fed him to the lions. Or Polycarp, who was told that he would be released if only he would recant. His response was something to the effect of 86 years I have served uh, him and he never once wronged me. How then could I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Or men like William Tyndale, who was strangled and burned to death for translating the book that typically just sits on our shelf for translating scripture. Why was Fox's Book of Martyrs the second most read among a book among the Puritans behind only the Bible because there's something humbling, there's something inspiring, there's something encouraging about such stories. I think if we're honest, these stories that we're going to look at over the next year at once encourage and then also terrify us. Would I have the strength? Would I have the fortitude to be like a Martin Luther and to stand against the entire world which is calling me to recant? Would I have the strength and the fortitude to stand in the midst of persecution, to stand fast under the threat as many in the early church uh, faced of having my children or wife being ripped apart? Would you have that strength? Would you have that courage? And we have no way of really knowing because most of us, I would say probably none of us in this room, although maybe someone has, haven't really found ourselves in that situation. 
And the reason that stresses us out is because we tend to want to rely upon tomorrow's grace. When we haven't been promised tomorrow's grace, we've been promised today's grace. Tomorrow's grace will be there for us tomorrow. So we're at once encouraged, inspired, and also humbled by stories of suffering and perseverance and courage of our brothers and sisters. The same way that we're inspired when we watch these epic movies like Braveheart or Saving Private Ryan and other epic tales of sacrifice and courage. My point in this is not that when we read these, uh, these accounts of martyrs and they're singing while being burned alive that we should think, well, if they did it, gosh darn it, I can too. That's not my point, that's pride, that's not humility. My point is that we read those and we say, well, if God was faithful to them, he'll be faithful to me, which kind of ties up the past few points. In studying church history, we see and thus remember the sovereignty and grace of God, which then strengthens and sustains our humility and faith. A fifth reason that we should care about church history is because it demonstrates that theological development doesn't occur in a vacuum. I don't know if you love documentaries. I like documentaries. And, uh, and so over the holidays, uh, I actually uh, got a, a recommendation from Jared to watch a documentary on the Challenger tragedy. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. I would encourage you if you're, you're not familiar with it. But I've always had an interest in the uh, Challenger. I was uh, eight, I think, years old whenever uh, the Challenger blew up. And so I was one of the kids that was in school watching it on a TV as it actually happened. I grew up about 20 minutes from the NASA Space Center uh, just outside of Clear Lake. And, uh, and so uh, I was really interested in space and NASA and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of where we would go on field trips uh, every year. But what was really interesting about this particular documentary is all of the context that I didn't know about the explosion. I'd seen it on TV, I had uh, heard, I'd talked to people who had uh, had, uh, had uh, more experience with it, but I had not studied it, like the fact that for uh, years there had been warnings about these O-rings, that there was this tremendous external pressure uh, from outside agencies and from the government to suppress these warnings in order to keep the, to a schedule or face getting shut down, or to face getting defunded, or something like that. And then learning that context, watching this documentary, forever altered the way that I think of that tragedy, of that explosion. No longer is it just some tragic accident that we couldn't have perceived. All of a sudden, that, I realized that tragedy could probably have been, and should have been, avoided. In a similar way, context matters when it comes to doctrinal development, as we understand that this didn't occur in a vacuum, as we read all of these things about like the Trinity and hypostatic union and justification by faith, the the doctrine of Trinity didn't just float down on golden plates like Joseph Smith said of the Book of Mormon or didn't just come all at once like Muhammad said of the Quran. Neither did the hypostatic union or the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility or things like the canonicity or sufficiency of scripture. Doctrine doesn't just suddenly appear. Even scripture didn't just suddenly appear. The Bible was progressively revealed over millennia. So theology is progressively unraveled over centuries. It's forged and these fires of church history, by the pressure of heresy and heretics, we'll talk about that this semester in particular. We have the doctrine of the Trinity because guys like Arius went around teaching that Christ was a created being who's subordinate to the Father. 
So that's why you have this ecumenical council of Nicaea getting together and asking, is Arius right? Or are guys like Athanasius right? We confess that Christ is fully human and fully divine because the church was faced with a number of guys who uh, denied those things. Guys like Eutyches and Apollinarius and Nestorius who would emphasize one to the neglect of the other. We have the doctrine of the original sin and things like total depravity because of Augustine's battle with Pelagius. We have things like justification by faith and sola scriptura because of the battle with medieval Catholicism. All of these things are in scripture. I'm, I'm absolutely a big proponent, uh, proponent of the authority and sufficiency and inerity, uh, inerrancy of scripture, but we have these things as the church is having to wrestle with what scripture actually means. Even heretics are saying, we believe the Bible. But the church is having to wrestle with what does this look like? So on and on we could go with other examples of these. One of the things that we will do this semester is trace the context in which we see these theological developments happen. And one of the interesting effects is that the, the things begin to make more sense the more that we understand this environment, the more that we understand the context. It's kind of like asking the question, why did the Twin Towers fall on September 11th? All right, imagine you're asked this question on some sort of exam, you're taking a citizenship exam for America or something like that, and so you write, you fill in the blank and you write, gravity. Is that correct? Yes, it fell because of gravity, right? It didn't go up, but is that really what they're asking? No, they're not asking that. Even if you were to say the answer, the reason that the, the Twin Towers fell on September 11th was because planes hit them, you haven't really scratched the surface of what was going on there. You don't have really have a full understanding of the meaning of September 11th, all right? You need to understand geo geopolitical events going back decades. You need to know about Islam and its perpetual struggle with the West and so forth. Likewise, you can articulate the Trinity without really understanding the context, but by studying the context, the beauty, the intricacy, the importance, the necessity of the doctrine becomes more clear. Let me give you an example of this uh, related not so much to theological development, but, uh, but more of a hymn. Some of you are probably aware of the history of the song, It Is Well. Some of you are not, but uh, it's long been a favorite song of mine. I, and then I heard the context in which it was written, and all of a sudden, it became much more meaningful and significant. Uh, the, the story of how it was written was in 1873, a guy named Horatio Spafford he sent his wife and four daughters overseas while he finished up some work and then he was going to join them, actually was going to join in uh, part of a uh, evangelistic tour of one of his uh, buddies. Unfortunately, the ship on which his family was, uh, was traveling sunk and all four of his daughters perished. Only his wife survived. So Spafford boarded the next ship he could to England and as that ship passed over the point where the previous ship, the, the one that uh, his wife and daughters were on, as it passed over that point, the captain called Horatio Spafford to his uh, deck room or whatever it was and said, hey, we are now over the point where the previous ship was lost. And so Horatio Spafford went into his room and he wrote words like, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like, like sea billows roll. Now, if you know that history, it makes the song so much more significant. This imagery of sea billows and suffering and sorrow becomes 
more significant. It adds depth and perspective. That's what church history should do for us if we're really studying it correctly. It's like watching a movie in, in black and white and in two dimensions, and then all of a sudden you see color and 3D. That's what church history does to theology. Thinking theology is dull, it's kind of like thinking Easter is boring because you've never really heard of the resurrection. You just heard of Easter eggs and bunnies and those kinds of things. A sixth reason you should care about church history is because church history connects us to the larger family of faith. You probably recognize this, but we live in a very uh, individualistic culture, a very privatized, very personalized sort of culture. Historically, that wasn't the case. Traditionally, identity was more sort of outward directed. For example, if you were to ask your great-grandfather about his identity, who are you? The way that he would answer that would probably be expressed in light of his relationship with others. He would say, well, I'm the father of so-and-so. Thus, his identity is related to his children. I'm a husband of someone. His identity is related to his wife. I'm the son of so-and-so. His identity is related to his parents, etc. But what about now? Now, is that the way that we primarily identify ourselves? No, it's not. Now we define ourselves more inwardly, more individualistically. Look at uh, someone's Twitter bios. What do people list there? Their personal pronouns, their gender identity, their sexual preferences, their hobbies, etc. No longer is it this outward focused thing where I get my identity as a result of interacting with culture. Instead, I get my identity primarily and almost ultimately and, and, and solely inwardly on the basis of something that is very private and personalized. And this has cultivated a very privatized view of Christianity. Even our initial call to faith is a far cry from the historic pattern of a very public act of repentance and baptism and so forth. Now what do we say? If you've ever been to some sort of revival meeting, how do you quote unquote come to Christ? Every head bowed, every eye closed. It's only between you and God and everyone who's peeking and the pastor and so forth. But for a lot of people, a church is no longer this people that you belong to, but a service that you watch online or one that you just kind of go and sit on the fringes. You don't really interact with anyone. It's again, it's this private, individualized, sort of commercial experience. It shouldn't be, of course, but it is. And there are ways to overcome this uh, individualization. There are ways that we can overcome that. Joining a church helps. And by that, I don't just mean going through the motions, but actually belonging, knowing and serving and loving and rejoicing and suffering together with other people. Traveling also can help that. There's something formative about participating in worship in Romania or Ukraine or Russia or Haiti or Japan or wherever it might be. It helps us to realize that the gospel is global. It's not just this local thing. It's not just something that's happening in McKinney or Texas, the Bible Belt or whatever. But another way to, to help conv, uh, combat that individualism and to understand the corporate nature of the body of Christ is to consider the historic contours of the church. It's encouraging to meet a believer in Japan, but it's also encouraging just to encounter a fellow Christian in a guy like John Bunyan or Jonathan Edwards or John Calvin or Augustine or Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, especially when you realize that they're your brothers and sisters. So church history opens our eyes to this rich heritage that we have 
and exposes us to other times and other places and thus other cultures and other societies in which the same gospel changed not only lives but entire communities and even empires as we realize that it's Christians like William Wilberforce who led to the eventual demise of the slave trade. It was Christians that first gave birth uh, to hospitals and universities. It was Christians who were the founding fathers of science and on and on we could go. So studying church history helps us to take our eyes off of ourselves, which is always a good thing. It's why uh, a lot of church fathers described sin as this inward bent and so the, the essence of true religion is to turn our eyes away from ourselves to God and to others. So studying church history helps us to take our eyes off of ourselves and connect us beyond ourselves to such an, something much larger than our country, even our own lifetime and our own culture. So speaking of our culture, church history, the seventh reason we should care about it is because it protects us from reading our assumptions into the faith. I have a particular fondness for, uh, for Africa between 2009, 2013. Uh, I think I took six trips to South Sudan and I loved it, all right? Anyone who knows me knows I am a bit of a clean freak. Uh, I love hygiene, but in Sudan, that's kind of out the window. And so you shower by a garden hose of this freezing, unclean water. You sleep under a mosquito net. There's geckos, I hate lizards geckos and there's frogs that are just literally coming in and out of your room on a wall as you're trying to sleep. There's no AC, there's intermittent electricity whenever they decide to turn on the uh, generator. A lot of my assumptions about what I really needed to survive or what I need to be happy melt away in this equatorial heat. And speaking of heat, one of the interesting phenomenon of this Sudanese experience is the, the entire Sunday worship experience there. There's a whole lot that's different uh, about worshiping in Sudan versus worshiping in most churches in America. There's a whole lot that's different from my experiences there and Parkway. They don't have face mics. They pass a plate rather than having a giving box. There's no AC. All of the doors and windows are open in the hopes of catching a bit of a breeze. And yet, what's interesting is that many of the guys there are wearing suits. Why are they wearing suits? Well, because somewhere way back when the gospel first came to that area, it came through British missionaries. And those missionaries left a whole lot of really good wheat. They left the gospel, they left the importance of preaching and teaching and baptism and care for orphans and widows and so forth. But they also, in addition to the wheat, they also left a lot of chaff. Like the idea that you need to wear a suit in church. And that works in England right, where it's kind of cool and rainy, but not so much in this tropical environment. That's just an assumption that was read into the faith such that in many areas of Sudan, if, if someone were to stand up to preach without a suit, they would be ridiculed or ignored. And the same principle is true here in America. Sometimes it's a suit. Some churches would never let me uh, on stage wearing what I'm wearing right now. Or maybe it isn't a suit, but it's something like alcohol. We just assume that alcohol is sinful or unwise because we grew up in a uh, prohibition assumption. And, uh, and then you travel the world and you realize that our post-prohibition assumptions aren't universal. And then you read history and you see that prior to the 19th century in America, just about no culture that ever existed had ever stigmatized it. We've talked about this before, but monks used to brew beer in the Middle Ages. Aquinas, 
And he was asked what he recommended for people. He said, a good sleep, a bath, and a glass of wine. Luther's wife brewed beer in their bathtub, which is weird. Calvin's salary was paid in wine. In fact, it was a form of worship that we see even in the church with communion and on and on we could go. And my, uh, my concern here is not just alcohol, but we all have these certain cultural assumptions and those assumptions color the way that we understand not only the present, but also the past. For example, I mentioned earlier the flaws of our heroes. So what do we do with the fact that a guy like Jonathan Edwards, the greatest mind to ever come out of North America, not just the greatest church mind or the greatest theological mind, probably the greatest mind, period, to ever come out of North America, what do we do with the fact that he owned at least one slave? What do we do with the fact that Calvin approved of the execution of a heretic? What do we do with the Crusades? We're gonna study all of those, by the way, over the next uh, year, but hopefully before we decide what we're going to do, we first actually consider the context of those events and we seek to understand them and not, just, uh, to, and not just rush to judgment, which is what our culture wants to do in accordance with our cultural preferences and presuppositions. Otherwise, we'll be guilty of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. If you've never heard this phrase before, I'd encourage you to memorize that. Chronological snobbery. He defines it as this, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find out why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom, where, and how conclusively? Or did it, did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so, which as so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. We talked about that a lot this past semester when we did uh, social and political issues. In other words, we all have blind spots. Every single one of us in this room Every single one of us in our culture have blind spots. And the problem with blind spots is that you can't see them. So when you're driving, what do you do to correct your blind spots? You have to turn around and look behind you. And that's what studying church history does. By turning around and looking behind us, we have a much better chance of avoiding an accident. And speaking of accidents, the eighth reason that we should care about church history is because it helps us avoid the mistakes of the past. You've heard before the saying, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. On one of my uh, trips to Romania with a bunch of high school students back in 2004, I think, we got to see this truism in full effect. We're staying at a conference center with this huge dining hall and breakfast was at 7 a.m. sharp, but the high school boys, that's just a suggestion, so they slowly trickled down one at a time, and we had this scenario that played out over and over again. On the table lay this assortment of eggs and sausages and various breads and vegetables, but each boy that would come down would look at all of these things and they would disregard all of those and they would reach for this off-brand cereal that kind of looked like Rice Krispies, and then they would reach for the milk, and that milk was fresh. And by that I don't mean they just bought it at Whole Foods, I mean, it had just come from a cow. 
And if you've ever had milk that's just come from a cow, you might know that that milk therefore was still warm and there were bits of hair still in it and it was pretty gross. And, uh, and so you can imagine what would happen. Each boy would come down, they would pour a bowl of cereal, they would pour the milk on top of it, they would take the first bite and then everyone would spit it out. Some ended up running to the bathroom to spit out more than that bite. But five minutes later, another boy would come down and we would see it happen over and over again. Not once did anyone ask, hey, how's the cereal? Not once did anyone ask, why is no one eating this cereal? No one would ask, why is everyone quiet and staring at me as I'm about to eat this cereal? Now, we would have lied to them had they asked us, but still, knowing something about the past helps us to avoid these certain mistakes in the present and the future. For example, we see something of what happens when faith is too intermixed with politics in the medieval period. We see the effects of legalism and moralism in the 19th and 20th century. In early debates on heresy, we see the dangers of trying to smooth out the mysteries of scripture. That's what the heretics are doing, as we'll talk about. They're not trying to, to uh, they're not trying to blaspheme. They're not trying to, to, to reject scripture. They're just trying to take these two truths that seem to be in tension and smooth out that tension. But by studying church history, we can avoid the mistakes of our fathers. In fact, we read something about that even in scripture. First Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So history not only humbles us and encourages us, but it also warns us as well. Ninth point, church history also helps us to minister to others. At uh, a previous church, I had a co-worker uh, whose mom had passed away whenever he was a kid. And then I had this other co-worker who really loved to make your mom jokes. Some of you can see where that might cause a problem at some point, and it did, and it was super awkward whenever the guy told a your mom joke to the guy whose mom had passed away a couple of years before. So knowing something about someone's history can be extremely valuable. If nothing else, it helps us from putting a foot into our mouth. But the same is true in understanding other religions and denominations. If you're talking to a Muslim, it might be helpful that you understand some of the theology and the history of Islam it might be helpful for you to know something about the Crusades. If you're ministering to someone who's African-American, it's probably helpful to be aware of things like slavery and Jim Crow. If you're talking to a Mormon or to a Jehovah's Witness, you might wanna know a little something about Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell. 
So knowing history in general and church history in particular makes us more effective at ministering to our neighbors. It makes us more effective in being able to be missional with them because we're able to relate to them and understand them uh, and, uh, and thus be able to uh, have inroads for sharing the gospel with them. Next point, church history helps us to rightly interpret the Bible. This is really just an implication of what we've already said, that knowing church history helps us to know how others have interpreted the Bible, and it helps us to distinguish God's word from our assumptions. The text from tradition. The text which is infallible from tradition which is fallible. So Mark Knoll, a church historian, says this, if a contemporary believer wants to know the will of God as revealed in scripture on any of these matters or on thousands more, it is certainly prudent to study the Bible carefully for oneself, but it is just as prudent to look for help, to realize that the question I am bringing to scripture has doubtless been asked before and will have been addressed by others who were at least as saintly as I am at least as patient in pondering the written word and at least as knowledgeable about the human heart. So this is particularly important today when so much that has always been held by the church is ignored or refuted for no good reason. For instance, someone writes a book about how homosexuality is fully compatible with Christianity and yet that view has literally never been held by anyone in church history. So we're left with an option. Either every single Christian who has ever thought about this before is wrong or maybe our culture is missing something. Maybe we're reading scripture through the lens of our presuppositions. Or someone says that it's okay for a woman to occasionally preach in the church or for a woman to do so as long as she's under the covering of elders. So we go back to church history. We see has anyone landed there? And we see that's not at all how scholars have interpreted texts like 1 Timothy 2. So again, either our culture is the first to unlock this secret mystery, this hidden truth, or our culture has imbibed these philosophical presuppositions that are then coloring our interpretation, which is more likely, that the entire church has erred for all of its history, or maybe that we are wrong. We should always be suspicious when we have interpretations and opinions and convictions that have never been held before. I think uh, Zach has said something to the effect of, you should be very wary when uh, you're saying the same thing on a subject that uh, Katy Perry says or a, uh, you know, whoever, Taylor Swift or something like that. You should always be suspicious when we have interpretations, when we have opinions, when we have convictions that have never been held before. Even Luther's revolutionary ideas actually weren't entirely revolutionary. In fact, the the battle cry of the Reformation wasn't uh, that uh, the church had always erred, it was ad fontes. It was go back to the source, go back to the past. The reformers thought that the Roman Catholic uh, medieval church had gotten things wrong, but they didn't think of themselves as creating something entirely new and innovative. If we're gonna be suspicious when we have these novel interpretations that no one has ever believed, then we have to study history to know what others have believed. I think the words of uh, Justo Gonzalez who wrote one of the best church history surveys if you're looking for a really good 
uh, in-depth survey of church history, I would recommend uh, his uh, book on this, uh, two volumes uh, work on the subject. I think his words are appropriate. It's kind of a long quote. Uh, you can follow along in your notes. Like it or not, we are heirs of this host of diverse and even contradictory witnesses. Some of their actions we may find revolting and others inspiring, but all of them form part of our history. All of them, those whom we admire as well as those whom we despise, brought us to where we are now. Without understanding that past, we are unable to understand ourselves. For in a sense, the past still lives in us and influences who we are and how we understand the Christian message. When we read, for instance, that the just shall live by faith, Martin Luther is whispering at our ear how we are to interpret those words. And this is true even for those of us who have never even heard of Martin Luther. When we hear that Christ died for our sins, Anselm of Canterbury sits in the pew with us, even though we may not have the slightest idea who Anselm was. When we stand, sit, or kneel in church, when we sing a hymn, recite a creed, or refuse to recite one, when we build a church or preach a sermon, a past of which we may not be aware is one of the factors involved in our actions. The notion that we read the New Testament exactly as the early Christians did without any weight of tradition coloring our interpretation is an illusion. It is also a dangerous illusion for it tends to absolutize our interpretation, confusing it with the word of God. One way in which we can avoid this danger is to know the past that colors our vision. A person wearing tinted glasses can avoid the conclusion that the entire world is tinted only by being conscious of the glasses themselves. Likewise, if we are to break free from an undue weight of tradition, we must begin by understanding what that tradition is how we came to be where we are and how particular elements in our past color our present, our view of the present. It is then that we are free to choose which elements in the past and in the present we are wise to reject and which we will affirm. Eleventh point, church history helps us to understand our own traditions. We saw that a little bit in that quote that I just read. When Parkway was going through our, the early stages of the replant, one of the members uh, that was leaving the church, told me the reason he was leaving was because he wanted to go to a, quote, more traditional Baptist church. Now, what's interesting is we were a Baptist church. We were part of the SBC. In fact, to this day, we're still Baptistic. To be Baptist, you basically hold two truths. There's no uh, ecclesiastical authority over the local church, like a presbytery or a synod or a pope. And then second, that you baptize believers by immersion. We do both of those things. So I asked him, what do you mean when you say you want to go to this more traditional Baptist church? And as he described a traditional Baptist church, none of it was all that historic or traditional. So it wasn't that he actually wanted a historically Baptist church. He just wanted the particular Baptist traditions that he actually grew up with. So an example of this related to singing. If you travel the world, you see worship forms are diverse. In churches in Africa, the drum is more central. In some churches in Romania, they use an accordion as the main instrument. That, that same diversity exists historically. So Tim is actually teaching about musical worship throughout church history in a few months for that reason. Why do we only have one or two people on stage? It's not because that's objectively better, that one person is objectively better or two or whatever it might be. Sometimes we might have three or four, someone will be miffed that we don't sing enough hymns, even though, number one, we do sing hymns. Number two, not all hymns are theologically sound. And three, what most people mean by hymns is just this particular set of songs that they grew up singing, most of which were written in the past 150 years. 
But no one really questions their presuppositions. One of the things that we constantly want to encourage you to do here at Parkway is to question your presuppositions, to question your assumptions. So every so often, someone will ask us, why do we at Parkway tell people who aren't baptized to not take communion? As if that's novel, as if that's innovative, as if that's different, as if that's strange or weird. When in fact, Everybody has always done that throughout history. It's really only the past couple of generations where that's not been the case. Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, all of them have uh, held the position that you, if, you not, if you're not baptized, you shouldn't take uh, communion. So one of the benefits of church history is that it frees us from these fads and novelty. That's one of the reasons that our worship service is rather simple. What do we do? A few quick announcements, prayer, singing, reading, preaching, communion, and lingering afterwards. And that's it. Why? Because nothing there is novel. Nothing is gonna go out of style like Z Cavaricci or Bell Bottoms or mullets or something like that. You've probably heard the anecdote before about the person who cuts the end off of a roast because that's how her mom did it. And then after doing that for a year, she finally asked her mom, why did you do that? And her mom said, because it wouldn't fit in the pan, right? It wasn't part of the recipe. It's not objectively better for doing that. It was just a result of the context. So much of what we do in our churches, we simply presuppose, presuppose and those presuppositions can get us in trouble. So knowing the history of our traditions is helpful and that sometimes it reinforces those traditions and sometimes it forces you to find new traditions. We did that a couple of years ago when we reintroduced wine into communion because we realized it was really legalistic of us to forbid the very element that was originally instituted by Christ and also that was overwhelmingly practiced throughout church history. By the way, if you wanna read about our reasons for that, we have a blog explaining the rationale. So church history helps us to understand ourselves and our traditions and our presuppositions, why we believe what we believe and do what we do. And the last point is that church history provides hope in the midst of darkness. Probably all been aware of this. A lot of you probably were waiting for the calendar to change to 2021 because 2020 was crazy, right? We're a couple of weeks away from one of the most highly contested presidential inaugurations ever, not to mention all of the cultural upheaval regarding the meaning of social justice and human sexuality and pandemic. There's postmodernism and socialism and existentialism are spreading throughout culture just like COVID and things might seem really bleak but church history provides hope in the midst of it. Hope for revival, as we read in the Old Testament, how did Josiah's reforms begin? By looking backward, by going back to the past. What about the Reformation? Again, the rallying cry was ad fontes, back to the source, let's go back to the Bible, back to the church fathers. There's hope for another great awakening, this actual movement of the spirit to bring about mass repentance. Rome was this pagan, sexually immoral, infanticidal, polytheistic empire, but it was the outworking of the kingdom of God and the gospel that brought about massive transformation. So time and time and time again, we see, we've seen these seasons of legitimate revival, but even where there's not, and the church just suffers, we see God's sovereignty and sufficiency in his goodness. So our hope, our ultimate hope, isn't just for revival, but ultimate redemption. And even looking forward to that eschatological hope we have of the return of Christ and resurrection, we can't do so, we can't look forward without looking backward to the historical events of the death and resurrection of Christ, which defeated and shamed not only God's enemies, but ours as well. So should we study church history? 
Should we be excited about and humbled by and encouraged by church history? Yes. Again, we might not do justice to that because we're frail and we're fallible and we're flawed. But the story, the subject itself is fascinating. This is the story of God's perfect omnipotence working through imperfect, finite, frail people such as us. So with these goals and hopes in mind, let's, uh, let's pray and then Jared will come forward for some questions. Father, again, I'm grateful, grateful for your grace and mercy that has been uh, on display, not only for the past couple of millennia of what we call church history, but for all of history. The history itself is the subject, the study of your grace and your sovereignty and your goodness and your redemptive plan. That in your mercy, you have condescended to help your fallen people. And so I pray that you would encourage, that you would incite in our hearts a desire and a hunger and a thirst to uh, study these things and to know more about you and more about ourselves, more about our own culture and our presuppositions and so forth. And so I pray that you bless uh, our semester, our year, as we embark on this study. We pray it because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.